of the human eye. Your leaders have withheld the truth. You are not alone in this universe. We have lived among you, hidden, but no more. If you resist us, we will destroy the world as you know it. Your world must not share the same fate as Cybertron. Whole generations lost. Megatron must be stopped, no matter the cost. Transformers Retrospective Series. I would have waited an eternity for this. Hosted by our movie reviewers in disguise, Stuart, Jerry, and Arnie. One shall stand, one shall fall. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as they roll out a new Transformers movie review and see if they are more than meets the eye. What you're about to see is top secret. Do not tell my mother. But be warned, these reviews will contain spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. This isn't my war. Not yet, but I fear it soon will be. Today we're buzzing about Bumblebee. Starring Haley Steinfeld, John Cena, Jorge Lendenborg Jr., John Ortiz. Directed by Travis Knight. This is the Now Playing co-host who's going to try to smile for a change. Arnie. And Stuart. This is Jerry, and I got the touch! You do. You got the Transformers touch. Although I gotta ask, Jerry, we are a year and a half after the stinker last night. Do you want to see another Transformers movie? Because I sure did. <laughs> No, that I think our review on that was pretty obvious. I think that was our second three for three no recommends out of that series, and that was just terrible. And we talked about what did that movie mean for Transformers going forward. I think we may even speculated there that, hey, this Bumblebee movie may or may not happen. But sure enough, it did. And here we are. I think it wouldn't have, except it started filming in July. They were too far in. I think they were just past the point of no return. Yeah, that makes sense. And so they're like, let's just do it, but let's do it on the cheap. Right. Because the budget for this was tiny. I think it was like the catering budget on one of Michael Bay's films. Yeah. <laughs> if we must roll out, then let's roll out with Michael Bay. I think that that is a sign of encouragement that helped me be... I won't say excited. I can't pretend to say that I was looking forward to Bumblebee, but I thought, man, they did new new management. So last night wasn't the last night. Travis Knight is the next night on board as the director. He is an Oscar-nominated animator who I had the opportunity to meet when I lived in L.A. He was doing the award circuit with Kubo and the Two Strings. He was being pushed for that stop-motion animated film and got an Oscar nomination out of it. My sense is they were looking for the next Tim Burton. This is a guy with kind of a goth aesthetic. You'll see in here he sprinkles in the Smiths and sort of the goth 80s in this. Obviously, they're going for E.T. with this movie, but I also think they would have been happy with Edward Scissorhands. You know, he made that movie Paranorman, which has a real 
Tim Burton mm. touch to it. That wasn't Tim Burton? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so they are going to him. If he is familiar with stop motion animation, maybe it's an easy in in being able to do all of this special effects work with the stop motion car. Wow, Bumblebee was stop motion? That's unbelievable. Well, no, I'm I think kidding. it was stop computer motion, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> also, kids' stories are kids' stories. From the inception, this was not going to be your dad's Transformers movie. This was intended to be more along the paranormal-type age range. To me, this is a movie that, with the exception of monster trucks that we reviewed last year, the three of us, it's a movie I haven't seen in a long time. But man, did I see it a lot growing up. So I don't know if they don't make these movies anymore or if I don't see these movies anymore. But it was always intended to be a small story about one Transformer and the girl whose yard he falls into. And that's a big gambit, too. I mean, Jerry, check me on this. But Transformers, it's primarily a toy that is marketed and probably purchased by boys. This is a movie that's going to try to expand its audience by having a girl at the central helm and not just any girl but an up-and-coming pop star Haley Steinfeld was up for an Oscar for True Grit I thought she was really good there and she made a very appealing Gwen Stacy in Spider-Verse She's got top 40 hits, but they're going for an entirely different demographic, I think, by making it not Shia, but Haley. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, it was certainly in the 80s and throughout beyond that considered a boy's toy line, either from Hasbro or, you know, whoever uh, classified. I guess it's been Hasbro the whole time. I think, though, in the last 10 years, call it maybe more, the Bumblebee character in of himself has probably expanded the audience beyond that. And I think it's fair to say that, yeah, when I've been to a few bot cons, it is mostly guys hanging around there. But there, there's certainly a contingent of ladies and women who, who enjoy the Transformers fandom, but your overall assessment is dead on. I know this is a controversial topic right now because people rail online that Target shouldn't have a boys toy section and a girls toy section they should just have a toy section because my daughter feels weird wanting an action figure now and my son feels weird wanting a barbie i understand this isn't maybe politically correct but hasbro has a boys toys division and transformers is in that division so it is primarily male in its purchasing and its fandom it doesn't surprise me that a lot of the BotCon attendees are male, which isn't to say there aren't women who like it or couldn't like it. Hey, I noticed female Autobot RC in this movie got a cameo. We talked about her way back with that animated 86 movie. But yeah, this is a male-oriented film. But I don't know that having Haley Steinfeld is such a risk because, first of all, she's a really good actress. Between Spider-Gwen, this, True Grit, I've just come to really think she's having a great period of her career and i'm happy to see her in stuff and b i think her story here is one that's going to be relatable it's not like there's this girl tina who's going to be her antagonist and it's not like they're making a tina movie which i think would be far more demographic narrowing i also think that if you're looking for something for the boys to hang on to a wwe wrestler is going to work this was 
early on pushed. I thought he was going to have a bigger role. Frankly, John Cena is here. I'm guessing, Jerry, you're a Cena fan. I watch a little WWE right now. I spent like 2001 to 2014 not watching hardly any wrestling. And that's really actually about when John Cena's heyday was in that, call it, I don't know, 2003, 2012, 13, 14. He's kind of considered a part-timer right now. Sometimes he shows up, then he goes and does a movie, works on a project, comes back to WWE for a couple weeks. So I'm indifferent to him. He certainly continues to be the biggest star they have who's active with WWE on any level. The Rock's not really considered active right now. He hasn't really showed up to a, a formal WWE event in a couple years. So John Cena's probably still one of the top names, but they're building other stars. Me personally, I'm indifferent. He's fine. I haven't really seen him in the movies. I know that he had a hit with Trainwreck, Amy Schumer, and yeah, then they gave him another vulgar comedy, Blockers, and they're kind of steering him in that realm. He did an animated bull film. I saw Trainwreck. He's not that big a part of it. I mean, it was mostly Amy Schumer and Bill Hader, but recently, for reasons that I cannot explain adequately, I saw Daddy's Home too. Oh. Yeah, I know. I feel the same way. If I was home for the, the next million years, I don't think I would make time for that, but okay. John Cena is a major part of that movie, and horrible. Miserable utterly intolerable and so i was coming into this movie like oh god no and there's some fan movement to get him as the next captain america something he's playing up posting on his own social media captain america yeah huh he's involved in a lot of projects like he's hosted reality shows and things like that so it's not always him off doing a movie but he has a lot of other television projects and things that go on the interesting thing about john cena in the last oh call it 16 years of his wrestling career he has never been what the wrestling world would refer to as a heel he's never been a bad guy at least not in the last 10 to 15 years so when he's on jimmy fallon when he's on a talk show when he's doing a comedy when he's doing something where he can be lighthearted, snl whatever i think he's pretty good he's got good comic timing i think he's very charismatic etc etc but when he has to play a bad guy because he never does in his wrestling world, I don't think he knows really how to do that role. Like in this movie, he's the tough guy. Get out of my way and you'll, you'll do what I... And it doesn't come across. So I, I think his little part in the first Daddy's Home, where he just shows up at the end, one of the funniest parts of the movie, actually. If he continues to play that same role in an entire second movie, I'm not surprised to hear that's terrible. It seems to me like by the end of this film, they'll shift him into the Cena that people apparently love. And my sense was that, yeah, he was like the new Hulk Hogan. He was the one the kids root for and The Rock sometimes was villainous, but could also be lovable. I'm not sure, but I'd know nothing about that world. That's fairly accurate. John Cena was the number one, what they call a baby face, the, the number one guy in the company that you could, hey, you need one of our stars to co-host Good Morning America? Send John Cena. Mm-hmm. But yes, he's looking for a franchise, I think, like a Fast and Furious or something. It makes sense that they would bring him into this realm if Mark Wahlberg is running away with everyone else that was in Bay form. Well, God only knows what kind of contract Wahlberg has, but again, by going the prequel route, which they decided to do long before the last night ever bowed before audiences and then was slain by audiences, they had this idea in mind. Remember, as I mentioned in the last night, Steven Spielberg hosted this writer's room full of 
named people who just started brainstorming where they could take the Transformers universe. And that's why in the last night we saw Bumblebee fought in World War II. Yes, they thought they could do a World War II Transformers film. And they Spielberg himself, yes, Steven Spielberg, not somebody else, was saying, let's put this in a movie so that we can build upon it later. And out of this writer's room, trying to make an entire Transformers universe of movies, this is the first spinoff. And it makes sense that the first spinoff would set itself into the 1980s because, well, for one thing, that's big right now. I feel like with Stranger Things and It and Summer of 84, there's been so many little horror projects I've noticed where it, it, we've really got nostalgic for that time and place. As a coming of age, I think all the people that came of age are now telling stories in Hollywood and people are parents and they're responding to that. But it's also where Transformers came of age. I mean, the first generation of Transformers, that was what? 83, 84? Yeah, I started collecting them at in 84 because I remember Return of the Jedi was out and done and the Star Wars toys were starting to fade and I was watching Transformers cartoons and G.I. Joe cartoons and loved the idea of robots in disguise more than meets the eye. It really got me. And so, I, again, I think that's good for box office if you're trying to you know, you don't want to throw away the Bayverse. He did a lot to give them ideas on how to bring these characters to life on a movie screen, but perhaps you would like something that doesn't feel so basic, then yeah, go back to what worked. Remember the toys you played with. Remember the 80s. That's a good strategy. One that doesn't entirely seem to be working. Now, we're releasing the show a week after we've recorded it. We wanted to put Aquaman out first, but the early box office on this is pretty dire. Even though this was done on the cheap, it is not doing what Bayformers do. Bayformers movies typically make 300, 400 million. This thing opened at 20. Mary Poppins mopped the floor with this. Yeah, it will be a struggle to even break 100. In the States, yes, but that's not where they want to play this. They opened it against Aquaman. If they really thought this was going to be a teen boy franchise film, the way the other ones were, they wouldn't have opened against Aquaman. This is counter-programming. This is aimed at younger kids. I've seen this movie twice now. The first time I went, much like I did with Aquaman, there was a preview screening. It's been, as of the time the show's out, I saw it three and a half weeks ago. They had this shown way early, and I went. It was a sold-out show, and yet half the seats were empty, so I think a lot of people just decided not to go at the last minute. Strange. Yeah, I remember there was preview nights for this. I think they wanted to get the word out. There had been a sense the push I heard it's a low bar frankly this is the best Transformers movie ever made the PB night was interesting and unfortunately the nearest ones to me were in Dayton I'm in Cincinnati I'm 50 miles away I chose not to do it but I kind of sense they must have thought they had something good on their hands here to get that two or three weeks let the good buzz the word of mouth get out there because yeah I'm not surprised ended up coming in third for the weekend is the estimate here that behind Mary Poppins Aquaman and that's tough competition there I think they're really looking at the overseas market because while, yes, the Transformers movies here have made a lot of money, in China they just make an absolute ton of money. And so since this one only cost a little over $100 million to make, if it makes $100 million domestically, it still could be making half a billion globally. Yeah, I know. Welcome to the new reality where America counts less and less. I hear you. But it is a surprise. I feel like it should have been able to beat Mary Poppins, at least. If it was going for a female audience, that was its true competition, not Aquaman. And the fact that it underperformed there means it's an uphill battle, I think, to sell 
people that didn't think they liked Transformers movie that they could like this. Well, what I've read is that this is considered, to use a sports metaphor, a rebuilding year. Trust has been broken. The one article I read, the comparison it made, was Batman Begins, having to come back to audiences after Batman and Robin. So they're saying Transformers The Last Night is the Batman and Robin of the Transformers universe. And while this movie may not open huge here, if it gets good word of mouth, if it has legs that last through the holidays, keeping it pretty consistent instead of falling off the way all the other films have, and if it does well on video, then it could actually be setting up a much bigger opening for the sequel. But I don't know that that's the exact right way to go, because all the Bay films are balls-to-the-wall action. This movie is the exact opposite of that by design. There's some obligatory action, there's a couple fights at the beginning and at the end. Mostly, this is a drama? Coming of age, tearjerker. You guys personify your car. I will admit, the car that I last had, I did have a name for him, Stumpy. I had a special relation with him. I, it's not foreign to me to have a sentimental attachment with a motor vehicle, but it's still a big stretch. I actually never have really, I love my cars, but I've never named my cars. I did order a Ford Explorer one time sight unseen, thinking it was silver and it arrived blue and my wife referred to it henceforth as the Smurf Mobile. But other than the Smurf Mobile, there has not been a named vehicle, nor have I called my car she or anything. I do that with my computers, but not my cars. Yeah, I think I'm probably the one of the three of us who think about the Bernie Mac line of the driver doesn't pick the car, the car picks the driver. I'm kind of more of that like, okay, no, the car I drive, I need to connect with. That's got to be my car. That's like, no, no, I'm driving that. That's my car. And I mean, golly, there's some great cars in here. And, you know, Charlie's trying to work on this Corvette and she's like this kind of motorhead gearhead that's actually kind of cool to see. And the whole concept of finding that right car, that I totally can dick i've never named a car though i don't refer to them as he she whatever but personalized license plates absolutely hey i took a road trip with you this year i got to see how you drive in your car and it is fast and it is furious oh that's right yeah you kind of see me in action on the open highway <laughs> i buckled up <laughs> all right jerry you're the car guy you get to give the plot then all right it is the year 1987. Oh, wait, that's not exactly the line, but that's what we find out. It is the year 1987. We actually start off on Cybertron. Not a flashback this time, which I thought was a little odd, but we do fast forward a little bit shortly. But we start off on Cybertron with Autobots led by Optimus Prime making their last stand against the Decepticons led, at least in these scenes, by Soundwave, Shockwave, and Starscream. Knowing they've lost here, Prime gives the Autobot B-127 a mission to go and establish a base on the planet Earth for everyone to regroup there later. B-127 then takes off for Earth and lands in California in the midst of a Sector 7 training exercise where we meet Lieutenant Jack Burns, played by 16-time WWE champion, you can't see me, John Cena. Lieutenant Burns and his squad there goes after B-127, but he goes on the run until he himself is interrupted by Decepticon Blitzwing. At least we think it's Blitzwing. The two battle, and B-127 is able to defeat Blitzwing, but not before he loses his voice modulator and suffers damage to his memory core. He's able to scan in a last-ditch effort to a 1967 Volkswagen Super Beetle before deactivating for six months. Then, later, we meet Charlie Watson, played by Haley Steinfeld, a teenage girl who continues to deal with the loss of her dad, along with her family, Mom Sally, stepdad Ron, and brother Otis. 
Charlie is interested mainly in finishing her project car, a classic 1959 Corvette that she and her dad had been working on prior to his death. She frequents a scrapyard where she finds our little B-127. Her friend Hank, who owns the scrapyard, gives it to her for her 18th birthday. As she attempts to start cleaning and fixing up the new ride, she triggers B-127's radio, which actually sends a signal out that is intercepted by two Decepticons, Shatter, voiced by Angela Bassett, and Dropkick, voiced by Justin Thoreau, who are actually interrogating at the time the Autobot Cliffjumper. They get what they need from the signal, kill Cliffjumper, and head to Earth. They arrive to Earth and are quickly intercepted by Lieutenant Burns, Dr. Wallow, and a Sector 7 force. They claim to be on Earth to hunt down the war criminal B-127 and ask for Earth's help. Sector 7 is hesitant, but comply. Meanwhile, Charlie unintentionally reactivates B-127, and we learn that he has no memory of what's going on and cannot communicate. Charlie names him to the more familiar name, and the name of this movie, of course, Bumblebee. Charlie and Bumblebee connect as we get a humorous fish-out-of-water story, and we reminisce on all things 80s. But Charlie does replace Bumblebee's radio, and he learns to communicate through that. Another familiar concept. They unlock a message from Optimus Prime reminding him of his mission. Meanwhile, working with Sector 7, Shatter and Dropkick utilizes all of the organization resources to trap B-127 down, and in effect, creating the World Wide Web for us. Take that, Al Gore. However, one day Bumblebee is left home alone, and through his curiosity and ignorance of all the things on Earth, he destroys the interior of the house, and even puts his finger in an electric socket, thus actually sending a signal out for Shatter and Dropkick to trace. After a fight with her mom, Charlie leaves to go after Bumblebee, and they are quickly intercepted by Sector 7 and the two Decepticons. Though they initially make a run for it, Bumblebee is captured and Charlie is sent home. Shatter and Dropkick can't get any information from B-127, but they intercept the message from Optimus Prime too. From there, they decide to send a message to the Autobots and to lure them into a trap. They blast Bumblebee, but as Charlie revives him from the use of Sector 7's high-voltage guns, it also reinstores his memory core, and Bumblebee is finally ready to fight. Bumblebee and Charlie catch up with the Decepticons, setting up a communications beacon to send out their deadly message. They foil the plan with some aid from Lieutenant Burns. Bumblebee separately takes out Shatter and Dropkick, and Charlie disconnects the signal, saving the day. Meanwhile, Burns has a change of heart, and he lets B and Charlie leave. But as we wrap up, Bumblebee also has to leave Charlie behind, as he takes on his next form, a 1977 Chevy Camaro, and then he catches up with a very familiar red flat-faced semi-truck that we know as Optimus Prime. And credits roll. You know, one of the things that I suggested as we crawled out of the wreckage that was last night was, boy, it would be nice if they went back with the idea of just making it like the cartoon, having the main characters be the Autobots and the Decepticons. I get that movie for the first three minutes of this film. I think the best part of this entire film is when we start on Cybertron and we actually have Optimus Prime leading a fight, you know, waging a war and being the hero. When I saw this at the preview showing, Marjorie was with me. Marjorie leaned over at the end of that sequence and is like, I have no idea what's going on, who's who, what is going on here? To which I just responded, I just saw the Transformers movie I've wanted since I was nine. <laughs> so if you're a Transformers fan, this has everything. I mean, you get to see Soundwave and he looks like he would turn into a tape deck. We never actually get to see him turn into a tape deck. No sissy satellite like he was in the Bayformer universe, right? Exactly. And between this and later on, we get a flashback to this where he ejects Ravage, one of his cassettes, and we get to see Shockwave and yeah, Starscream and all these battles going on. This is a dream come true and far too expensive to keep up for the running time of the film. But man, this was the first moment 
of greatness in the entire Transformers film series. Yeah, already I gotta agree. I mean, this was really the Generation 1 cartoon, at least a snippet of it, one or two, that really just comes alive. And it actually reminded me of the very first episode of the Transformers cartoon where it starts off on Cybertron, they all leave to go to Earth, and the Megatron chase them. You guys probably, if you know I'm talking about it, you, you can picture it. And it has that very familiar bumblebees in that scene. Optimus Prime is like, hey, let's get on the shuttle, go to Earth. And it's that same mood, the same feeling of being on Cybertron and all of those nameless seeker jets going after the Autobots. And yeah, I'm sure there's some names out there we'd probably recognize. But you're right, for the first three minutes and another, I don't know, two minutes in the middle of the movie where they kind of flash back to that thought, I guess as Bumblebee's trying to remember things, you're like, wow, if they could do with the right budget a follow-up movie or another side story of the day in the life on Cybertron of these two factions warring, that's exactly what it should look like. More, it's the best Transformers fight we've ever seen because we can tell them apart. For this film, the design team has gone back to what Bay did. And when I saw the preview showing, there was a little featurette after the movie that I got to see about the special effects. And they talked about how they redesigned everything and the way Bay did his Transformers. All the plating and all of the hull of the vehicle, be it a plane or a car, was always internalized. And he was taking the engine and he was taking the tires and the drivetrain and everything and making that the quote unquote skin in robot mode. They wanted to go closer to the toys, not exactly like the toys, but if the car was yellow, then in robot mode, your primary color would be yellow. And if you're Optimus Prime, your primary colors would be red and blue. These don't look hardly at all, especially in the faces like Bay former bots. I know we're in the same universe, kind of. I'll talk about some of the continuity as we go through, but I can tell them apart in quick glimpses here. I can immediately recognize Optimus Prime, Soundwave, RC, just instantly. It's it's tremendous. Yeah, I agree. I had that trouble in all previous films here. Some of it is that I've had the previous films that teach me who they were, and some of it is that, yeah, they're more distinctive. They're more human-like when they're upright and standing and tall. When we finally see the main attraction, the yellow guy blows in. He's a car. He's like a cool car. I don't know what he is, but he's known as B-127, and he's got a voice. It may not even occur to you at first, but he's speaking with the voice of Dylan O'Brien, star of the TV show Teen Wolf, and someone that's had his own run-ins with cars. He was uh, mowed down on the set of Maze Runner and incapacitated for a year, but uh, <laughs> is apparently able to do voice work. Here's where some of the continuity kind of flubs. <laughs> didn't he talk at the very beginning of Transformers 1? Let's not co go there. Let that and didn't happen. You're saying these are connected. They don't. Oh, They're no. Not. They are. Uh, not to me. And also, didn't he come to Earth for World War II? No. What's, what's this landing in the 80s? Yeah, I was going to say, whether this is supposed to be a true prequel or an actual rebooting the franchise, I mean, they've made a movie where they can decide later. Yes. There's obviously some things we learned about Bumblebee. I mean, even the original 2007, you got the impression that they all came to Earth for the first time. You know, Optimus Prime is talking to Shia LaBeouf and Megan Fox like, hey, here's how we've learned about your world through the World Wide Web. We learned your language through eBay and blah, blah, blah. That obviously didn't happen in 1987. So there's at the very least least some key things that are being discounted. And look, I get they're taking like, okay, we don't care what last night said. We're going to play off of something else. So I kind of hope 
that they're in a scenario where they're like, hey, guys, let's if this does pretty well and everything like you're saying earlier, Arnie, we could decide to just make this the first movie of a new Transformers universe. But if we want to loosely X-Men first class it into maybe the first 2007 Transformers, eh, we can if we want. So I hope they go with it. X-Men First Class was my direct comparative, where we're going to reference things that happen in the future and set them up like it's coming there. We're going to wink and nod, but we're also going to do our own thing, because if you watch the first three X-Men film, there's absolutely nothing to tell you Professor X and Mystique were great buds growing up together and everything. That's how I kind of view this. We're going to retcon a lot, but we are going to also feel like we're leading directly into base Transformer 1 in some way. And no one that likes Bayformers wants them to hold continuity. It's not that they love the story that was told in those movies. They love the thrill of what he brought, the energy he brought, perhaps. But I can't believe anyone's going to care whether they erase certain plot details from those films. Oh, yeah. That wasn't the point. You don't go to those things because there's a wonderfully woven story in there. I recommended three out of five of those. And I actually kind of wish I could take my vote back on Dark of the Moon after seeing it a couple more times. But even though I enjoyed a couple of them, Yeah, leave it behind. I mean, I told you guys on those podcasts, recommend or not, this wasn't the Transformers I wanted. Of course not. It's just Transformers gets a reboot along the way through different cartoons, different toy lines, a comic book here. I mean, you can enjoy Transformers however you want because there's so many different things available to you. Either the extreme of a Beast Wars or go to a car robots or this comic universe over here, Unicron trilogy over there, Bayformer universe. I mean, it's a buffet. Was it the one I wanted? No. This one's starting to feel like, hey, you're getting really, really close with this. And Bumblebee is tasked with the mission of setting up a base for the Autobots. They're losing. They're not winning this war in Cybertron. Optimus Prime is going to go collect the other Autobots that are somewhere else, maybe in spinoff movies, maybe not. Probably not, because Earth seems to be where they want to keep the films. But while he's going about that mission, it is for Bumblebee to go on Earth, a hidden planet. I thought that was kind of funny. Nobody knows about Earth. Go there and set it all up for us. Does it bug anybody else, or is it just me, that... Optimus Prime, Shockwave, Cliff Jumper, B127. Does he not get a name? <laughs> that is really frustrating. <laughs> That's because humanity is going to be the one to christen him Bumblebee. It is going to be for our main character to do that. They want to do as much as they can to show that the story we're about to watch is important for establishing the Bumblebee we love. I get it from a storytelling perspective, but it makes no sense if you have any logic beyond that of a child. Yeah, roll out, Arnie. You should be used to that by now. Let's roll out. Oh, no, we already got our first (laughs) roll out. Come on. Anyway, he's going to come to Earth, and it's apparently right in front of a paintball training exercise. Sector 7, this is a new concept, right? We don't know anything about this. What? Sector 7's been in every single movie. Has it really? It's, has it? Are you serious? Agent Simmons with a Sector 7 underwear in the first movie. Come on. Oh, was that the same thing? I mean, I guess I'm revealing my hand here. I have never gone back and will never go back to watch, listen to, or <laughs> go through any of those Babe former things again. Never. That's fair. But 
yeah, Agent Simmons, who was played by John Turturro in, what, three or four of the movies, we get him as a young guy here in Sector 7. John Cena says, thank you, Agent Simmons. Oh, okay. See, this is how I tell you it's all connected. I see. All right, I miss these things because I don't want to see them. I'm arguing that this is a reboot because I do not want to look back at what has been done. I want to wipe that away and start anew. But that's not what they're exactly doing. I didn't realize these guys were Sector 7, though, the first time I saw the movie until much later. It just seems like, honestly, I wondered if they were businessmen. Remember Friday the 13th Part 6 where you had all the businessmen out doing paintball and then Jason comes and kills them all? Yeah, it would have been trendy to do because paintball became a thing around 1987. Common people just went out there and realized it was something that you could do for fun. I mean, laser tag around the same time happened. It's a weekend warrior type of thing, sure. Yeah. Yeah, so it could have been anything, but we will find out by this movie's design, it takes a little while, that these are people that track aliens. And as such, they're very concerned when this comet comes streaking down and there's an alien robot. And I instantly hate John Cena. The way they introduce him here, he's playing paintball. He's setting traps that grab people around the ankle and hang them upside down. And then when they're defenseless, he's shooting them despite A, the guy says it hurts, and B, the guy saved his life in Granada. I mean, that's a dick move. Oh, yeah. No, he's the company bully. I mean, he's John Cena, obviously, in real life, and we don't see it in this movie necessarily, but he's a big, strong, muscular guy. If he wanted to bully people, you know, he probably could and phys- with the physicality. So he's coming off as, like I said earlier, that role he doesn't play very often. He's the heel. He's the bad guy of this. So he's, you know, not the bad guy in terms of the villain, but like within this company, he's, he's going to be a little bit of the jerk. It might have been fun to play with the idea that he's Arnold Schwarzenegger because this was the heyday of Arnold Schwarzenegger's superstar. This kind of feels vaguely like Predator here in the forest. He could have played the character in that way if he wanted to, but he is his own creation and he's not playing who he plays in the arena. From what I'm hearing you say, this is him trying his hand at being one of those, you're going to end up liking him, but for much of the movie, he's going to be an antagonist for Bumblebee and for the characters we like. He's given some reason to dislike Bumblebee because his entire team, I think, is killed here. He will blame these robots for that destruction. He does not make a distinguishing between Decepticon and Autobot when Blitzwing blows in. And he clearly has this horrible scar on the uh, right side of his face from that end battle. And so, yeah, I wasn't sure would this movie probably being geared more towards kids. You're not going to see the carnage. But I got that too, Stuart. And I kind of wish they'd played that up a little bit more. Like he directly blamed Bumblebee or the aliens and then later realizes. I mean, the turnaround he does later, I'm not trying to jump ahead here, but the turnaround he does a little bit later is just like, huh, that's kind of random. I wish they'd played with that a little bit more. I agree. And watching it the second time, I'm like, yeah, all these people died, right? Some may have died when Bumblebee crashed, but it's kind of done in that cartoony, everybody just flies and screams kind of way. But by the time all is said and done, I'm pretty sure John Cena is the only survivor from this, and he barely survives. He's left bleeding and upside down in a truck. So I could understand why he wouldn't exactly think Bumblebee comes in peace. Right. And Bumblebee can't defend himself because Blitzwing is going to rip out his vocal cords, about to really execute him, and B just grabs his rocket and destroys him, but is so injured that he's going to go into complete power failure, and as a dying act, he scans the nearby picnickers and sees a classic VW bug. I forget, but yeah, the one that we know from the Bay universe, that was the update on the VW bug, but that wouldn't have existed in 1987. It's 
got to be a remnant from the hippie days. He wasn't allowed to be a bug. He was a Camaro in the early films. Really? You really don't remember these films at all? I thought he was a bug. No, Volkswagen said no. Yeah, Volkswagen would not allow him to be that Volkswagen car because of him running around blowing things up. We did talk about it in the first podcast. That was a very specific thing. Now, what you might be remembering, when he rolled into Bernie Mac's car lot, he parked himself right next to a Volkswagen. Yes. I'm like, I know it was in the movie. Okay. All right. So there it was. Yeah, they just wouldn't allow it because they said that they did not want any of their vehicles associated with violence. Now they're having some legal troubles and some payout issues and some mileage yeah did you buy a tdi in the last 10 years google it (laughs) okay i'm actually a big volkswagen fan i actually drove a yellow beetle of the newer style for a little bit and not because it was bumblebee just because i I think they're cool cars but no it's refreshing though to see him come back to this volkswagen like you said earlier Stuart, if we're going to be in 1987 it's going to give me something to scream to me that it's 1980s transformers then man bumblebee's got to be a volkswagen he was that as a toy right Yes, the original toy, yep. Maybe I'm confusing it with cartoon memories then. I don't know, but okay. At any rate, he has positioned himself to be in a scrapyard in the classic mode when our main character eventually gets to him. But it's going to take some time. We have to spend a lot of time setting up Charlie. And I didn't recognize Haley Steinfeld when I saw this movie originally. I didn't know it was her from True Grit or anything. But here we've got your shorthand for your rebel, right? She wakes up wearing a rock t-shirt, wears her Walkman, and sniffs her pits and is like, yeah, I'm clean enough, and walks out into her broken home. There is too many issues, I think, given to Charlie. It feels piled on here. The most obvious one is... They're going to make a big point of as she's doing her morning grooming, she speaks to and kisses a picture of her father. And we know instantly, okay, she's got a dead father. She walks out into the living room and mother is kissing this annoying guy named Ron. We're starting to get that broken home, the dissolution of the nuclear family that we know from so many divorce movies of the 80s. Nobody seems to care that it's her birthday coming. Nobody seems to want to help her out in getting independence or a car or even make her breakfast. She has to eat Mr. T cereal. I pity the fool. I had to look that up. I was really upset the first time I saw it. I'm like, 1987? How stale is that cereal that they're eating in 1987? They actually made Mr. T cereal into the early 90s. Mm. But this movie is fast and loose with its 80s. I'm going to put it out there right now. It is drowning in remember the 80s icons, music. It's all over the place. Not all of it feels very specific to 1987 particularly, but that's okay because everyone that's to enjoy this movie is too young to remember the 80s. The reel-to-reel still works because we were all using those in 1987. Hey, my godfather did have a reel-to-reel as did my father in the 80s and used it once in a while. And the thing I'll give it is unlike, say, the Goldbergs, which I love but is way off on their timeline and intentionally so, here, every song they play, I think, would at least have been out in 87 even if it seems a little bit less likely that it would be getting top play but this soundtrack if i didn't already own every single song on it they're going to just hit us with a whole bunch of songs right away to tell us who charlie is we're going to start with things can only get better when she's at her job and then when she spills lemonade on a hot guy and rich bitch tina makes fun of her they're going to play bon jovi's runaway 
day. And then when she's scavenging for parts, we get Duran Duran's Save a Prayer. They're just slamming the 80s hits. I mean, I guess they're trying to comment in its own way. She will later have a line saying, music can help you say what you feel. Uh, This movie, music is the only way feeling is conveyed. I do feel like so much of the work here is done through nostalgia for the 80s. And I'm not sure that I actually feel anything for this main character other than nostalgia. I do. I like this character. I'm able to relate to her, maybe not so much for my own life, but because of all the movies that you've referenced. I mean, the dead father issue. The movie that I consider this to be is basically a remake of E.T. Oh, yeah. And Charlie is our Elliot. Elliot's dad had gone away with a woman. Here, Charlie's dad is dead. Elliot had an antagonistic older brother. Here, Charlie has an antagonistic younger brother, Otis. And so the fact that her mother has moved on with Ron, I mean, this bearded, unemployed guy, he's like, well, I have a job interview. They make Ron out to be much nicer than I think a movie normally would for the unemployed new husband. Later on, we're going to meet another couple from Texas that I think is how most movies would have played Ron. But here, they're a little bit more nuanced, dare I say. Yeah, don't say that because it's not true. This movie's not nuanced at all. All of these things are very, very broad strokes. You bring up E.T., you better be Spielberg, is all I got to say. This movie does not have the heart of Spielberg, and all of these things feel like copying. Like, yeah, we'll just take it from that. They keep layering in the idea of aliens. The family's watching Alf. She has an alien poster in her room. Like, I don't think they actually ever reference E.T. directly. I thought I saw maybe an album. There was a moon on an album vinyl cover. But other than that, they're careful not to call it out too much. But this movie is not E.T., I mean, this is closer to Mac and me than E.T. This movie's sense of connection, I'll just go ahead and say, I'm not going to buy it. I don't buy the dead father and that I've got to learn to dive again. She's going to be throwing away her trophies and her terrible mother is going to let her do that. And then her mom's going to buy her a helmet and all of this stuff feels canned TGIF ABC sitcom level writing. I guess that's some kind of throwback, but (laughs) it's bad. I'm indifferent to it. I I can see both sides of the fence there. I think it is the piling on that you get of, okay, dad's passed away. There's the new husband. It's not that you didn't forget her birthday. They just act like there's nothing they can do to give her a good birthday because all she wants is parts to fix that car, some money to go fix that car. And I would think even in 1987, that's a tall order to fix a first-generation Corvette. So it seems like whatever anyone does for Charlie would just be a letdown aside from getting her that car and, and whatever. So I guess I may be more with Stuart on this. It's fine as shorthand to tell me about Charlie's psyche and where she's at and the fact that she would suddenly find her best friend to be a mute automobile. Makes sense because your family is super lame and your life circumstance kind of stinks right now. But it's not that bad. She's not abused. She's at least working. I assume it's the summer or something because nobody's talking about doing anything in school. Her brothers, you know, the family functions fairly well. So as a woe is me type of thing on Charlie, aside from the dad who passed away, the rest of it's just normal family dynamics that everyone goes through. So I don't feel for her too much, but I like how she's playing the role. I like where it goes, but everybody else is fine. I'm going to stand alone then because I really think they They've done a good job of not only giving her these types of issues with the father and the car. She only needs $500. I mean, that was a lot more in 1987 than it is today. But also, it's her birthday. What gifts does she get? 
a helmet as if to say, you're stuck on that moped forever. And second, the father gives her a book about smiling. And can I compliment this film for being feminist in a completely awesome way? And this is how you should do this. I feel that the Star Wars prequel trilogy kind of pushed on Rey a little too hard, pushed her out there a bit much. Here, you've got a guy, an annoying, creepy guy, telling a woman she needs to smile more. And that's a big thing right now is women do not want to be told to smile and they're not there just to be pretty for you here she's going to react to this appropriately but it's not going to be a huge deal it's making the statement without over spotlighting the statement and this is one of the best female lead roles i have seen in a action movie because they don't make a huge deal of it. It's a great way to put forth feminism without riling up the comics gate type crowd and the alt-right because they do it in a subtle way that shows a competent woman. But later on, we're going to have the pseudo boyfriend Mimo running around. He doesn't get pushed to the sideline. We get a woman here for the first time in a Transformers film too. I mean, Every woman in Michael Bay's film was bikini clad, short shorts, showing a bit of ass and wearing more body oil than anything. And here we get a real woman character. I love her. Okay, this is not a fleshed out character. And me and Charlize Theron want to drive over your ass by saying that she's the best one that you've ever seen. I said lead and that's Mad Max's film. It is not Mad Max's film and you know it. I know it, but it's Mad Max in the title. Okay. But they're on. All right. You got a good point there. She may be number one, pushing Haley Steinfeld here to number two. I can't believe that you're buying. Like, this is on the level of monster trucks, these kinds of characterizations. In fact, I think it was the same concept that I got to fix up this old car. I got a family member that's a father that's not there anymore. This is rote. This couldn't be more predictable and banal, which is fine. You got to have a roadmap for how to get there. But E.T infused this stuff with heart and with feeling. I mean, you really felt the scorn that Elliot had been given by the older brother and the, all of that. It hurt. It stung. And you feel that. And when Haley's going to get together with this bumblebee, I don't see it as this proxy. They try to sell it that this is a proxy for the relationship to the father who's no longer in her life. That is a little bit odd to me. My dad's missing, but I'm going to connect with this mute car. But here's the thing. We get this emotional scene I found it to work where she's talking about why she cares about the vet so much and it's not licensed to drive. It's not Corey Haim who wants the BMW so he can impress Mercedes Lane. She wants that car because her dad died of a heart attack after her high jump competition. She feels she never got to say goodbye. What she thinks is if she could get that car running maybe he'd be able to hear her and she'd be able to say goodbye. So she has already found a belief in herself of closure through magic cars. Yeah, and I just want to ask, tears are welling in your eyes. This is a conflict. She's literally stating these things out loud that you're feeling. There's two different points you guys are highlighting. Stuart, I agree with you that like, I think the smile book was dumb. Here, let me get you a helmet for your moped when I know you want to fix up a car. Those are just dumb things that are fueling how 
I'm supposed to understand how Charlie's feeling that I don't get. Now, Arnie, the car thing I get. The moment she starts talking about, hey, my dad and I were working on this car and there's a closure. If I can finish the car and complete that one thing dad and I were doing, that part I get. I like what they're doing with the car, how important the car is. It's not just so I can drive out of here. She's got Bumblebee for that now. The moped will get you pretty far on really good gas mileage too. So it has nothing to do with that 18-year-old freedom thing. But I, yeah, just the little things that the mom and the stepdad did and how annoying the brother were, that was just the shorthand for you to... To think that wow charlie's life sucks i just thought those parts were dumb i liked it when it shifted to the car and her connecting with bumblebee that i go with if they had limited it to my dad was working with me on this car and he died i'm going to work through my grief by repairing that car if they had drilled down into that they would have had something but then they got this whole thing in about and i can't high dive anymore either and she's got too many problems she works at hot dog on a stick and people are mean to her there's too much unfocusedness it's not busyness but it is still distracting other elements that keep them from feeling what they're trying to tell us, which is that she needs a car to help her connect with her loss. Here's where I will very much agree with you. Anything dealing with kids her own age, with the exception of Memo. You like Memo? Well, we'll get to Memo. Okay. But early on here, we see the bullies, right? And I'm going back to like Karate Kid, kind of. The way the Cobra Kai picked on Daniel-san. When we see her, you know, Memo's trying to get her attention several times during this movie. He walks up to her and says something, and she's always, I'm too busy. And one of those too busy times, she goes and spills a bunch of lemonade on this hot guy, Trip Summers, and his... So stereotypical 80s rich snob, like she'll graduate from this movie and star in Heather's girl named Tina and her two friends there are just so ridiculously over the top cruel and pointless. The screenwriter, Christina Hodson, I don't know where she, I don't think most of her scripts have been produced yet, but she's working on Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I'm going to guess she didn't grow up in the 80s. She grew up watching 80s movies because all of this feels like she's copying things that she saw from The Breakfast Club and John Hughes and what have you. And that's my problem. It feels artificial. You're remembering something that never existed. You're getting nostalgic for the feel that really wasn't how it was to be there. Yeah, I could definitely agree with that. The problem is it doesn't pay off. I don't understand emotionally. I get the father thing and I buy the father thing, but is she hot for Trip? Later on, she's going to go to something where Trip is diving off a cliff and they just literally stumble upon it and they try to get her to go dive off a cliff too and she won't. In full clothes without stretching or warm up, she's expected to just dive off an enormous scary cliff with rocks below yeah it's her fault <laughs> what does this tell us is she afraid of jumping now is she afraid of heights later on it's gonna be like she's afraid of heights and then she's gonna dive there is a lot going on with her and truthfully if i could cut one scene from this movie i'd cut where they're 
at the party with the high diving with Trip because I get enough from this first scene where she spills lemonade to see that she's looked down on by her friends. She doesn't have friends. Her classmates think of her as lesser. I don't need where that goes. Anything else involving Tina should have been left on the cutting room floor. This is a movie for kids and it's got a longer runtime for a kid's movie and there should have been some more judicious edit. Yeah, that was a little bit more of the uh, Disney Channel original movie type of scene that aside from the fact that we got Stan Bush's The Touch in that scene. There's this through line of this diving thing that's very poor. She states that when Bumblebee gets the video and is watching her meet and the dad is on the video, that's the last time I saw him or the last video that they took together. I don't know if he died the next day or whatever. Hours later. I took it as he died at the meet. Like, yeah. she dove, he fell over, the ambulance came. <laughs> okay, if it was that, whatever. There was something that she associates with her diving with her dad dying. So you see a point where she can't do it. She walks off, which I agree. Cliff jumping, no pun intended, but cliff jumping, people get seriously hurt doing that kind of stuff on vacations. I mean, I've seen exposés on it. It's horrible what you can do to your spine. But anyway, later in the movie, she has to dive to save Bumblebee. I don't get why she had to do that. But that's what they're trying to set up is that she'll do it for Bumblebee. She'll overcome all of it. That's what Bumblebee brings out to her is trying to reestablish that relationship as the replacement, I guess, for her dad. Weird. But it doesn't work for me. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that because I do feel it's diagrammed. It's the kind of thing you do when you're starting a screenplay. You say, I want it to do this. These are the connecting materials. This is how they'll come together. Diagramming is very important to do. Structure. Michael Bay didn't believe in that. So yay on them that they're trying to build this relationship. That said, you don't just get all the points for trying. You have to do it. And from word jump here, I mean, they're trying to throw in Steve Winwood's higher love, like her working with this bumblebee is like the higher power. They're letting the music do all of it. And in fact, that is her contribution to him, is that he has lost his voice, so she can't fix her own car, but I guess she can fix car radios. And she's able to give him a car radio and he can do what we know he does in the Bay Universe and speak through DJing and picking snippets of lyrics. She doesn't repair the radio. She replaces the radio. So I guess when Autobots are damaged, they could take parts that you get <laughs> at Circuit City and just put them on in there. And the thing is, there's only so much you can fix on a car. At a certain point, you need a part. At a certain point, you've repaired everything you can repair and you need a new part. And so I think that's where she's stymied on the Corvette. But Bumblebee, these early scenes, they're kind of sweet. Bumblebee's as afraid of her as she is of him. He's stumbling around and cowering. It reminded me of Short Circuit and Johnny Five in the early times because Bumblebee lost his memory in that fight. He completely has amnesia and he doesn't know where he is. He has no idea who he is either. Right. It's a lot of music. You know, she tries to get him to play the Smiths, Rick Astley, because we all know what being Rick rolled is nowadays. <laughs> He's going to opt for Unchained Melody, her dad's favorite song. Again, they try really hard to build this relationship based on the dad with the heart attack. And I just think less is more here. Pull back and maybe give us some genuinely touching moments. Don't try to use music to play over all of it. It is weird if her song with her father was Unchained Melody. Oh, my love my darling i hunger for your touch that's not exactly a father-daughter song i'm just saying plus ghost was four years away that song wasn't in vogue in 1987 the humor of this movie is 
very different, obviously, than a uh, Michael Bay movie. And I saw this movie, by the way, with, with my son. He and I saw just as a regular 2D show and at a theater nearby us. And I'll have to admit, when Bumblebee, Charlie, and Memo go to egg her house, and they're trying to show him how to do the toilet papering and the egging and everything, which, by the way, Charmin Free is actually a product that was actually a really good callback to the 80s of getting the right products from that era. But anyway, when he takes the eggs and smashes it on the hood of the BMW and starts jumping on it and destroying the car, my son and I and the entire theater were just laughing hysterically. That that was such a funny little scene. It didn't have to be here, but I just got a big chuckle out of that. So I was kind of glad that little short little payoff just for Bumblebee to do something hilarious. And in the late 80s where people don't have the cameras and the cell phones and everything, he can, unlike monster trucks, actually take off and nobody has any idea what just happened. That to me was legitimately funny. You found that funny because I actually thought that was a step too far. I thought... Step too far? Yeah. Yeah. How so? It was destruction of property. I mean, and second of all, this movie really bothers me because does no one have car insurance? Everyone acts like their car, if it is broken, is irreplaceable. Does she not have insurance? She could just fix the car. Nice to know. I'm going to go trash your car right now. Don't worry a thing, Artie. Give me a break. Back to being a car guy, yeah, I can get a new car, but that one's my car and you're destroying it. That ticks me off. So yeah, the tick off thing and then there's like the feeling of like the car that you drive and you identify with. It's not like that, Arnie. I mean, maybe it is for her. Daddy would just buy a new one. But I mean, the shock of seeing that, it's just funny. She doesn't hurt, doesn't hurt anybody, doesn't set the house on fire. It's just a car. But just the fact that Bumblebee has no idea what he's doing because he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't understand this earth he lives in, kind of like when he tears up the house later. It just kind of funny how he's like oh this is funny just start stop it was just a, a spontaneous scene that i would didn't see coming and it just got that reaction from me i thought that was funny i think the movie needed more of it arnie you're saying less of tina and the friends my feeling is either not at all or a lot more of it have bumblebee help her fit in with those people or in that world i think that scene worked okay i mean i do think you needed something to happen in her daily life i mean it can't be all about the dad is what i'm saying so then it ends up getting revenge on tina who was mean enough to say that your dad can't buy you a car because he's dead i mean she deserved a little something and i don't think anyone was feeling it was unjust the car her dad bought her got crushed i just thought if this was going to go that way we needed to go the way every 80s movie did take out memo and instead have trip realize hey my girlfriend's this bitch but this girl here really has soul and i like to jump off cliffs and she likes to jump from high things and we have a connection you get the rich bitch back by stealing her boyfriend not by smashing her car no 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 he's james spader and memo is john cryer like you don't want the preppy that's vain and takes off his shirt and is the popular one to be the one that the girl gets but let's not forget though molly ringwald ends up with andrew mccarthy not with john cryer at the end of 16 candles and so i think we could have had charlie if you're going to have the teenage angst 
You could have had her wooed by the guy from the wrong kind of the tracks. I thought we were going 16 candles anyway. I wondered if anyone would even remember Charlie's birthday. But then we could just go pretty and pink. And if you're going to have the teenage drama, end up with her showing off in a way that makes these other people look bad in front of their class. If Tina makes fun of Charlie in front of her friends, the end needs to be a reverse burn, not a midnight vandalism. Yeah, I'll agree with it. Except, Ari, that's just not the movie we're in. This was just a drop humor moment. No, that's exactly the movie we're in. That's my problem. It's not the revenge on the mean girl movie, though. This isn't a Hughes movie. It could have been. I don't get why the two guys are here. Maybe this is a good time to start talking about Mimbo because you notice I left him out of my plot summary because I really didn't know, to be concise, how to throw him in there. I love that his name is Memo because that's exactly how he comes off. Some studio executive slipped the writer a memo. It's like, you need to have a love interest in this thing. Everyone needs someone to kiss. But you're right. This is not a character. It could have been. Certainly a way of looking at youth films in the 80s is to follow a Hughes formula. And the car could be the Ferris Bueller to make this stick in the mud girl become popular and fit in. And not so much death angst, my father stuff. You could have made that movie. I think it would have been a lot more fun if they had tried to make that movie. But that movie is glossed in here with Mimo as the dorky guy who has about five scenes at the churro stand trying to get her attention outside the garage. He lives down the street from her. He works next door to her. He goes to the school with her and she never pays any attention to him. He ends up walking into her garage. The reason why he even becomes a part of the story is that he sees Bumblebee upright standing as a robot and thus has be taken along. I think Bumblebee is trying to help him out. I think he's trying to be a wingman. Later, when they're running from the sheriff at high speeds, he'll push them together as they're driving up the side of the tunnel like, you know, let's get these two together in the back seat. But this is not that movie. It could have been that movie but Memo, I guess it's gender parody. We've seen many movies where the girlfriend role is thankless. This is a movie where the boyfriend role is just as meaningless. He's the partner in crime. It's good to have somebody other than Bumblebee for her to share her joy with. These are the first times we see her happy is when she's with Memo and Bumblebee and she's showing off by doing the I know what you did last summer, let's hang out the sunroof while the car drives itself kind of thing. I enjoy their scenes together and I enjoy their tepid romance. I enjoy that it doesn't end with a kiss. I like the realism that even after going through all of this, Memo's going to try to hold her hand and she's like, yeah, we're not there yet. I actually like that a lot, but I feel like we should have gone with the Teen Wolf solution of the hot guy wants Charlie and Charlie's like, no, Memo's the one for me. Turning down the hot guy the way Michael J. Fox finally turned down the hot blonde for boof. Yeah, those trips do not have a completion to the storyline. There are mean people and unattainable popular people that have some influence on this girl's self-image and she's in the middle of the movie facing them and never gets a final showdown and that's just a mistake of this movie it got cut because let's face it what we've been talking about is a john hughes movie where are the transformers we have interspersed in here the story of the decepticons but maybe not enough to the liking of people that did like the bayverse and i look to you jerry as the person amongst us who best liked the bayverse does this transformers movie have enough transformers in it for you 
That is one thing that popped in my head. I mean, you're talking two extremes here. I mean, you remember when we were talking Age of Extinction and I said something to the effect of the first 40 minutes of the movie, however long it was, I was really digging the fact of, hey, what would this movie be like if it had just been Mark Wahlberg and his family and just on some sort of adventure with Optimus trying to get away from that bounty hunter and the bad guys to where you didn't need a million Transformers. And, you know, I didn't really like the Autobots in that team The did some things in the decision. Decepticons I didn't like visually and all that stuff, but I did ponder, yeah, what if it had just been Optimus Prime and Cade just trying to get back and find the rest of them, kind of that kind of movie, and I kind of dug that thought. So I'm okay with the number of Transformers. I wish the two Decepticons that we got, they're chasing Bumblebee, who for the most part don't have prior history in the Transformers universe. The name's out there, there's toys out there, etc., but these aren't known characters. That just kind of screams they're dead meat. The stakes aren't as high to me because of that. So on a Bay level, of course not. That was chaotic. I even said that, even though I could tell them apart. It was still like, hey, we just threw in six Decepticons, here's their names, but they mean nothing. They could be anybody. It'd been okay if there'd been more, but I think for what this movie was trying to accomplish, and especially, hey, I keep the business side of it in my head too, to keep this lower costs and given us snippets of the battle on Cybertron and how there's more Transformers coming later, I was totally okay with this. It was fine telling us the story they told with this. If they had just thrown in a bunch of Transformers for the sake of throwing Transformers in, that wouldn't have been productive. Yeah, it's you can't accuse this movie of being toyetic. They don't overload it despite that introduction, which is, again, was just a tease to let you know how big the world could be. The fact that it's really only going to be two against one. That the shatter and drop kick are following the signal. It was actually kind of Charlie's fault. She turned on his radio and that sent the signal back. They were able to come to Earth, but not know exactly his coordinates. Because she replaced that radio, they wound up in Texas and they have to find their way to Bumblebee. And their landing in Texas is my least favorite scene of the entire film where we get to meet these two complete stereotypes Roy and Amber, where Roy spent their house money on a car and he tried to sleep with Amber's sister and his defense is he wasn't successful at it. And the meteorite, because the Transformers are going to land like comets, he stands in front of the car like, not my car! Like, this moron thinks he's going to stop a meteorite if it's going to hit his car. Like, he's just going to hulk out and stop it and the car will be safe. And again, insurance! I mean, this is called comedy, Arnie. I'm surprised you seem to be positive about this film, and yet the, I think some of the brighter moments in it you're being excessively critical of. I think ruining Tina's car and ruining this guy's car seems to be in the wheelhouse of a movie about cars for kids. And by the way, just for the record, in 1987, insurance just isn't fixing those two cars. They're 60 souped-up muscle cars. They're probably one of a kind. I mean, you get the money value back for it, I suppose, depending on how well-documented it is if he even has insurance and you know at, in 1987 on these cars but those are two cars i'm like no that's not an insurance moment that's a oh crap that was my car well he only had one they just the two transformers both modeled after it but the rednecks i'll say maybe since they spent house money on a car he cheaped out and got liability only and so he would be sol but i don't know i had Car insurance isn't cheap for teenagers, but it seemed like Tina's mom could just buy her another one. But yeah, here, Roy and Amber, and we're going to see something interesting with Roy. Roy is going to be the first human killed by a Decepticon, and 
instead of blasting him, and like we've seen in all the Michael Bay films where they land charred and dying, he turns into water and pops. Yeah, it's like a goo. It's a, you can't do that on television, slime moment, almost. I kind of took it that since we're out of, what, 60, 70% water, that everything else was just vaporized, which I don't know why I wouldn't superheat the water, but like we were just reduced to our lowest component of water. I didn't get that. I didn't get what weapon they're using that would have done that. I didn't research the science on the physiology of the human body, but I was just like, he's just a pile of water now, isn't he? He's just, you know, mop him up, he's done. I, I didn't get that either. Tell me you're not advocating, though, that it needs to be blood. I mean... No, I'm not. No. We don't need blood in this film. It's fine. You know what? It's violent enough for this kid's film that it took my breath away a little that people were going to die. At this point, I had kind of been lulled into this feeling like, eh, nothing much is going to happen in this movie. That someone got killed here woke me up. I think I would have advocated for a off-screen, the gun shoots off-screen and you just infer it. That's a Transformer sort of way to do it. I, mean, I wasn't offended by it either way. I just, I'm just like, hey, why did he just, because you're right, Arnie, it's just with the viscosity and everything of what, it was like he just turned into a big bucket of water. And that evil Transformer, they never say their names. I know that we got some names here that are from online, but I watched this movie the second time, like, pen in hand, say a name, say a name. The moment you say a name, I'm writing it down. They never said a name. We're going to debate that when the video comes out because I, I knew their names walking out of the theater and they don't introduce themselves. But when the two are talking, they say his name anyway, because I walked out. I was like, wait, wait, was that kick drop drop? I mean, I was confused of what it was exactly, but they referred to each other. They don't do a formal introduction, but the well, at least one of their names is in there somewhere. But either way, they're two throwaway Decepticon characters, which, you know. For somebody like me, that just screams that, yeah, they're not going to make it out of this. So Dropkick goes, I like the way they pop. So I <laughs> kind of viewed it as a very kitty water balloon moment. But I did have to look this up because for me, turning people into water balloons is very PG. But somehow this movie got a PG-13 rating. Oh, really? I would not have guessed that. Me either. This movie does not earn the 13. Yeah, you said you were shocked. You might have been shocked if you thought it was PG, but this is the world's softest PG-13 I've ever seen. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm with you on that. At any rate, Sector 7 picks them up, and there's a standoff in the road, and Angela Bassett's character, Shatter, she's the smarter one. She realizes we can get more out of playing along with the humans than making them pop. It's Dropkick that wants to splat everybody and start a war that they're outnumbered for. She's more like, I got an idea. If you help us find our criminal, we'll help you invent the internet. Yes, I agree. I was thinking, Al Gore, actually, the internet was invented long before 1987. I, how did I know you would be the one to point out that that wasn't accurate? Because I was working on the internet in 1994, so that's why. <laughs> but this is where I start liking John Cena. First of all, this is where we get our Agent Simmons cameo. Young Agent Simmons brings him a memo. Wow, I totally missed that. I, I saw the dot matrix printer. I thought that was the joke. But the joke was that was little John Turturro. Uh-huh. Okay. And John Cena is gone from crazy heavy to actually being the smart one. We have a Powell guy. He's the scientist. You know, this is kind of a carryover from Michael Bay, that he tends to want to be pro-military and anti-science. The scientist, of course, is like, yes, we'll give you our phone lines or satellites, all of our most private means of technology. It's Cena who is smarter saying, you know, they are called Decepticons. I think it's the best joke in the film. He's like, it's in the name. That's where I was going. That is the best line in any Transformers film ever. 
is how obvious is it that they're bad? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he's calling it out. He's breaking the fourth wall almost and letting us know. We know that this is a silly concept, but just go along with us because it can be fun. And so they're working it out. And eventually they've got an interconnected system that when B does put his finger in an electrical socket, they're going to know exactly where he is and they can get him. And this is a total E.T. moment, right? E.T., when Elliot goes to school and E.T.'s left home alone and drinks the beer and Elliot belches. And here, because they've run from a cop on an interesting car chase. I like the way Bumblebee used his hands when they were just running from a speed trap. It's completely incidental action after they TP'd the house that Bumblebee wouldn't play I Can't Drive 55 and try to outrace a cop. Yeah, but it's also, some, again, this is the backseat moment I'm talking about where we're supposed to believe he's helping the kids get over their inhibition. But after that, she feels she can't take him out of the garage, and so he's left alone like E.T. was, and he's going to get in some trouble. He's going to follow the dog inside and smash the door, and then he's going to be so careful, I'm not going to hurt the lamp, and then backing up and destroying stuff. Listen, this isn't genius. This isn't original, but it's checking the boxes. Bumblebee isn't a child, right? This is an adult Autobot, right? Yeah, but it's a fish out of water. But he still doesn't know who he is either. He's not Bumblebee, the brave Autobot warrior looking to establish a base. He still doesn't have his memory. That didn't come clear to me. You mentioned that in the plot summary and it was like a light bulb coming on of like, oh, I I did not quite understand that because she at this point has seen the hologram of Optimus Prime and she knows that he is being chased She assumes that he is hiding. I mean, but the way that they're playing it is that this is, yeah, almost like a five-year-old or six-year-old. You see on screen later in Sector 7, the memory core coming back online. So he's seen the message. He knows something is up, but there's no way he can comprehend and process, at least in my mind, of what all this really means. So yeah, he's just, like Arnie said, that's how I described it in the plot summary, fish out of water. Like, hey, what is this? What's this do? Oh, I'll just have a seat here. Not even realizing the couch is not designed to hold the... I don't know, 1,800 pound weight of whatever he would be, but at least if it was really a Volkswagen, a ton or whatever, uh, of sitting down on. So it's fun. I'm like you, Arnie. It checks the box. There's nothing unique and new and amazingly different about this, but I liked how they did it with a, you know, one of the few smaller Transformers who could fit in a house to begin with. This stuff is much better than even the 2007 when they're sneaking around the backyard and you get... Ironhide, like, oh, my bad. Or Optimus Prime, you step it, oh, my bad. This is a much better version of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I specifically was thinking about that 2007 movie and how I railed against Optimus Prime and them doing the silly stuff there, whereas I'm enjoying it here. And what's the difference? The difference is the stakes. Sam Witwicky knew that, like, the Earth was in danger if he didn't get these glasses. And so it's really silly that he would try to have them hide from his parents. It just only makes sense to a young teen mentality or a tween mentality. Here, it's a little bit unbelievable how easily Charlie's going to roll with Magic Car Alien and not ask any questions and train him to hide because she knows government agents will cut him up. Whereas my first thought would be, did a government agent create you? Are you a new war bot or something? Why are you here? She rolls with all that pretty easy, but there's no stakes here. There's no earth shattering stakes. So the biggest stake is, is Charlie going to find happiness? And so, yeah, we can have a bit more silliness. 
hey, it's 1987. She saw E.T. She knows they're going to cut him up. Yeah, exactly. And just to be clear, you're saying that it's a good thing that the stakes are really lower here. I'm saying that if you're going to have these scenes, you can't have world-ending stakes that are happening right then. You understand? It's just the overall tone of the movie. This is a lighter-toned movie, and so having this scene in it makes sense, whereas Transformers 07 was really self-important, and so when you had a very similar scene, it felt so out of place and eye-rolling. Michael Bay is terrible with tone. I'll give you that. This movie has consistency where Bay never could. In any of his films, he will go from inappropriate humor to, yes, nine climaxes atop one another trying to get your adrenaline up, and that can be really whiplash-inducing. I'm not hating all of this. I want to put it out there, even though I'm grousing that I feel like a lot of these relationships are, you guys say it right, checking off boxes. But I associate that with formality. Like, yeah, we got to do this. Yeah, let's throw this in. Oh, we got to include that. It doesn't feel organic. It doesn't feel like it's happening. But I do think that there is something charming about B himself. I think it's a design for this film. I didn't notice it in previous films, but we're finding out I don't remember a lot about the previous films. The ear flaps, right? That really does give him a B quality that he's got these little antennae nodules that pop out of his head. What I thought, and I never noticed it before, I thought it was part of the redesign, what I thought made him look like a bumblebee was the car doors on his back flap and move, and they kind of looked like little bumblebee wings. And yet she gave him this name, not because of how he looked or his yellow color, but because of his sound, that he was just making a buzzing sound. And again, getting back to the idea that she connects to him because she can talk to him in ways that nobody else can hear and and vice versa. Again, diagrammed. I wish I believed that stuff, but I know where they were going. I liked it a lot better that when she found the car, bees had just nested in the bottom of the thing. There was a hive under there. That right there is good enough reason to name him Bumblebee, right? Sure. This movie is good at throwing a lot of things at the wall and seeing what's sticking here. But eventually, we get Burns taking him back. That they are on the run. The Sector 7 has found them. And despite her best efforts to run away with her friend, they are caught. She is returned to the house. Her parents are told and are surprisingly blasé about it. Can I say that her mom is the most contemptible character in the entire <laughs> film? She screams at her for getting the car and then she takes it without asking the next morning on an air. Calls it a death trap and then immediately thinks she'll drive the death trap. I just, yeah, I I don't want this child to come back and realize she needs this family. I want her to get away from this mom. And again, the fact that she's with Ron, who's so annoying, and doesn't have any of the grief of losing the dad that the daughter does. It all makes her so contemptible. And of course, all she can do in finding out that her daughter was in life-threatening peril is ground her and send her to her room. This mother is bad. First of all, the actress comes off like a Catherine Keener wannabe with her dark hair and her breathy talk. It was like Catherine Keener could convey more sympathy. I was specifically thinking Catherine Keener's parental relationship in 40-year-old virgin, but also, how long ago did the dad die? That swimming tape video looks like it was just filmed. Charlie has not matured. It looks like she does today. It's like the dad died 
a month ago and mom had Ron waiting in the wings. I thought I heard the term six months. Okay, that's very fast to turn around and be married and living with Ron. Yeah, I'm not siding with Charlie, but I'm agreeing with her that the people are awful and that there's no reason to talk to them. If this is her parents, then yes, this is a world you turn away from. And so she's grounded in her room and B's taken back, strung up and tortured. And out of that, the Decepticons finally get to see Optimus Prime's message and they know the Autobots, they don't have to do anything. The Autobots are coming to them. They just need to let the other Decepticons know. A perfectly fine MacGuffin now, right? I mean, they got to send a message. Decepticons phone home. It's the E.T. thing again. Right. So the climax is all going to be about, even though they built this web, they've got to go to this one satellite tower in in a shipyard and try to let them know. Even though I agree with what you guys are saying about the mom and the dad, it is interesting that they do come around. It's funny, you know, John Cena's in their living room saying, oh, hey, she's confused. She took property, blah, 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 blah. And she just sneaks out the back window. She's not a security threat at all and just goes about and does her thing. I mean, she knows about the aliens and their Sector 7's just bringing her home. So she's fine. We'll leave her there. But she sneaks out. She goes in there. She's the one that saves Bumblebee in a roundabout way. Bumblebee gets his memory back there in that scene. The two Decepticons go off and do it just like you guys said. And what's interesting is that the parents come around and decide to help her out. I think it's interesting that they emphasize that she's 18, so she's kind of like she's a real adult now, and they just can't make her not do something, and they decide to help her. So it it is kind of funny. I like the little bit of appropriate humor here and there about Ron driving the station wagon and everything, but what I think's funny, you get to the point where you have this communication tower and it it's so much better than bumblebee 20 years later in our 2007 just having to send a light out into the sky so i do like how the movies progress this no they're actually going to set up a tower and bumblebee as i was saying earlier this is where bumblebee realizes who he is he's back in the fight and man he gets in here and does kick some butt which i think you guys heard me state on some other podcasts of like you know i don't see bumblebee as not typically the big martial art fighter here but he's overwhelmed and I like how they did this fight with him and the two Decepticons. What do you guys think? Yeah. What scared me a little is when he gets his memory back, he starts blowing the hell out of Sector 7 and we don't see human death, but as much explosion as he causes and he gets those red eyes and everything, I'm like, you just killed a whole bunch of humans. Then Charlie's going to bring him back to himself and he's going to go after the Decepticons. But man, I don't know that any human would ever want a Transformer back on Earth because Autobot Decepticon, you all screwed us over. I didn't exactly like the tone of the scene either. I think they could have went a little bit better with it when John Cena actually kind of shoves down Charlie and that really sets him off. I think at that point, when Lieutenant Burns realizes that the Doctor had just been killed by the two Decepticons and he's the one trying to, you know, last act of heroism, trying to warn him over the the radio before he gets evaporated. At that point, they should have had some connection with, okay, I knew those two were up to something. Bumblebee, what are they up to? I mean, I think that's where they actually should have started cooperating. I think that would have been a little cleaner. You wouldn't have probably gotten that car chase everything, but like, just like you said, Arnie, that was a little weird that John Cena realizes he went one step too far, he runs, and there's mayhem there. I, th- I think they could have played that a little bit better because that's where we end up anyway. They're not getting enough out of this climax. They have a lot of moving parts 
And I don't think Cena gets anything to do. They have this younger brother, Otis, who was lying for his sister. He's wearing a yellow belt. I keep waiting for his karate skills to come in. All he does is vomit. Ron drives into an intersection wrong. That's how he helped is by being a bad driver. The boyfriend is always running up too late. I understand this movie's called Bumblebee, and I understand we want the girl to do the bulk of it with him. Call me crazy. I'm missing Michael Bay just a little bit here. Whoa! Well, you could call it baziness. This feels like blaseziness. I mean, this is kind of boring to me the way that it's all coming together. It's half-assed. No, I think the action of the tower is good. I just wish that when John Cena had come in with the helicopter and it was distracting him a little bit, I wish they'd had just a little bit more, hey, we are fighting on the same side now. Let's finish this and then I'll let you go. But I thought the action was good. I mean, the one-on-one fights that Bumblebee had with the two Decepticons and the way he kind of, especially the way he takes out Shatter, I thought was very clever because it was obvious he wasn't going to actually beat her in a one-on-one fight. So he had to do something clever. Yeah, I agree with that. That's the only reason you'd call back for Bay is because you didn't like the action or the explosions, right? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, I do feel like, it, you know, he does have energy. And what I'm not feeling enough from in this climax is energy. I did like the fact that, yeah, he shoots and misses her so he can flood the place. But that's also that Haley, this very contrived reason that Haley Steinfeld could have climbed a crane and dive again. He doesn't need her to, like, get off off the bottom of the thing. I just, this is, again, I it's diagrammed. I understand what you want me to feel, but you're not doing it well. And when she's looking at climbing and she's hesitant i'm like wait is she afraid of heights now i didn't know what i was getting between the cliff jump and this and then when yeah bumblebee breaks a dam and she's like b and she does her high dive great form i'll hold up a (laughs) 9.6 but what's she gonna do with a one-ton car underwater Again, they tried to make that parallel between her last dive and her father dying and that, yeah, that this is her facing death again. It's not working. Scrap this stuff. Throw it away. He doesn't breathe air. It's not like he needs to. No. To me, for that to really work, she had to have done something. And there's a little bit of a callback here. I mean, Arnie, you might remember from like the second or third. Remember that first set of episodes of Transformers when they had the three-parter and they all come to Earth, etc.? Yep, yep. I rewatched it back when we did the retrospective. There was a scene where has a fight with one of the cassettes they go underwater the cassette comes up hound doesn't spike jumps in and has to move a small rock off of him and kind of reactivate him so hound can get out otherwise he's just gonna sit there yeah he doesn't breathe air but if he can't move he's just eventually gonna erode or something i guess i don't know so he has to actually go in there and underwater save the autobot there had to have been something i think for that to really play out that she had to dive down in there and flip a switch turn something you know I don't know what she could have moved that would have held a one-ton robot down that she could have moved, but there had to have been some reason she had to go in there to get him up, because he acted like he was just sitting there resting up for a few minutes. He'll be up in a second. Like, hey, Charlie, just give me a second. I mean, it didn't play out that she had to do that agreed that bothered me yep me too i'm it's dumb yeah this movie has told us this is a transformers movie that's going for heart so this stuff needs to matter in a michael bay movie that we didn't feel these emotional moments that wasn't the point okay whatever but this movie has told us it's everything here and when they don't land it hurts the film But the emotional moment that does work for me is after the fight, which was rote but acceptable. It feels like obligatory. We're in a Transformers movie. We have to have a fight. And I liked that it was two one-on-ones and they gave 
Charlie something to do, but that Lieutenant Burns says, get out of here. They're going to be looking for him. The sentimental E.T. gets back on his ship. Goodbye at the Golden Gate Bridge. Worked for me that she was having closure both with her father and with the leaving of Bumblebee. I mean, I don't want to mock you for having an emotional connection. That's great. I can say I did not. No, I'm not saying I had an emotional connection. I'm saying she had an emotional connection and the scene was functional. Yeah, functional is a very good word for all of this wrap up. They know they need to hit all of these notes, check these boxes, as you've said. And again, it helps when you layer it over with 80s nostalgia. Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me. And he does the Judd Nelson fist bump thing from the end of the breakfast club and he turns into a camaro because he's a camaro in the movies and if i was volkswagen i'd be pissed at the one line you mean you could have been a camaro all this time which specifically says chevrolet greater than volkswagen or at least a vw bug i mean you know those old ones they have their fans again but i associate them with the hippie movement that long ago wouldn't have been cool in the 80s well and keep in mind she's actively trying to put together a chevrolet corvette so it does stand to reason both of the cars are old one's a 67 one's a 77 camaro so i mean neither one of them are right off the assembly line Line, but yeah, it did come across of, oh, thank goodness you're not a piece of crap uh, beetle anymore. <laughs> and then he goes and drives next to a semi-truck, and I'm like, is it Optimus? Did Optimus come 20 years earlier than in the previous film? Or is it just a truck that kind of looks like Optimus? No, if you stay for the credits, and by that I mean literally one credit, you see the director's <laughs> name, and then you get two credit scenes, you'll find out that was Optimus. He's here, and seven more are about to arrive. Amen. And Charlie has gone home and reconnected her family, too, and fixed her dance. Like, I don't know how. I thought for sure Bumblebee would teach her the mechanics of fixing the car, but somehow she can just now fix that car, and it's all healed, and she's on the road. Back to life, even. This is a Haley Steinfeld song. And do the body work, and repaint it, and do... You know what I would have liked to have seen, though, is just remember... In one of those first Transformer films, I think it was the very first one, Sector 7 writes Witwicky's parents a giant check to fix all the damage the Transformers did to their houses, hush money. I would have liked Sector 7 to write them a big check for what Bumblebee did to the living room, and then they give Haley the money she needs so she can fix the car. I mean, we didn't need that. I mean, however she got there to fix it, whether eventually saved it up or had just better frame of mind and just... Because we saw earlier how easily frustrated she got because of the emotional baggage she brought into it. I mean, however she got there. It was a beautiful car, though. Holy cow. I mean, I, I was just happy to see that car roll across the screen. Like, wow, that thing actually looked like that once it got all fixed up. You know, great work. But yeah, either way, she found the closure and she's ready to move on to that next step, whatever that is for her. I presume it's not going to be showing up in a Transformers movie, but she's ready to go on and be Charlie. <laughs> yeah, that's debatable. Well, are we sorry for Charlie or happy? Jerry Stewart, do you recommend Bumblebee, Jerry? Yeah, I mean, as we've said, this did have moments to where you felt like, wow, that is the Transformers that I really wanted to see. Them on Cybertron, recognizable characters, the shock waves and the sound waves, we've seen them in the bay, but they always had a different feel, a different role that you didn't really want to see those characters in, but you're kind of glad that the names show up and the voices are there. But overall, that wasn't what this movie was. So it is hard for me to separate 
the promise of what the next one could be versus, okay, what did I get here? And I'll attempt to do that. For sure, I walked out of this movie Thursday night. I was pretty stoked. I was like, wow, they did a really good job with that. I like that. Of course, we've listed the flaws. Don't hear perfection in the movie, but I think it's a tough holiday season for so many other movies out there that you might want to see. But if you're into this sort of cuter, lighter tone, but that still has the good action, much better callback, Nostalgia is a big thing. If you, Hey, sometimes you just like seeing a romp through the 80s and re- reminding you of a few things that have been out there. But overall, the story was very linear, not overly convoluted, not a billion Transformers that you can't understand what's going on. And I, and I get those criticisms from other movies. I thought they really stepped out and did a good job on this. So much so that I really hope that this is a reboot. I hope they can decide and think about where to take it and say, hey, you know what? We don't need to tie into those Bay movies. Now, I don't know if Michael Bay is a real producer on this or just a producer credit to fulfill obligations. If his hand's anywhere on this movie in reality, maybe you guys have researched it more than I have, but I hope they can take this to go forward somewhere else, or at the very least, and I hate this term, but like the whole soft reboot, retcon a few things and take it into another direction. To me, it's a really good start, and Arnie, you're Batman Begins analogy is a pretty good one. You know, can we get our Dark Knight off of this? I sure hope so. But I'll give this a recommend, an absolute recommend. Stewart, I don't know much about how cars are put together. And if you gave me a Transformer toy, I probably wouldn't even be able to make it change. I have put particle board furniture together. And the assembly of this movie feels an awful lot like that experience. When you go to Ikea and you see the display bottle you love, and you're like, I'm going to make that. In this case, let's call it E.T. or maybe Edward Scissorhands. You see E.T., you're like going to bring it home. I'm going to follow the instructions step by step. And you're going to find out you still don't use all the pieces. And when you put it together, the drawer doesn't quite slide in right. And it wobbles. And you're like, yeah, it's usable, but it sure is tacky and a very poor facsimile of what you wanted to make. That is Bumblebee to E.T. I know what they were trying to make. I agree that that was the right direction, but I don't like what I'm seeing here. And while it might be more cohesive than Bay, you could make the case that even the first Bay Transformers movie was more exciting than this. This movie likes to make a lot of 80s song references. Mine was Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, because I wasn't planning on this being so slow. It's just not an exciting movie. And so if it's an improvement, it's not enough to get into the green zone. They need to try harder if they want me to care about Bumblebee and the Transformers. Not recommend. But what about your kids in the sewer? Because this does feel more like a Mutant Ninja Turtles movie and less like the Michael Bay films. I would say that I... I liked Monster Truck and Transformers 1 at least as much as this and maybe a little more. Monster Truck? Yeah. Dude, you're insane. (laughs) Monster Truck was the Disney Channel original movie version of this story, and this is your entry-level theatrical version. There's no way Monster Trucks is better. And I recommended that one, by the way, too. I was like, wow, that wasn't half bad, but this is not Monster Truck. Yeah, Monster Truck was unique because it's the only time I can remember a four-year-old dictating the story. It's just kind of a bizarre attempt at formula. Again, if you gave the four-year-old the IKEA furniture to put together, you wind up with monster truck. This one, again, none of them are perfect assemblies. None of them come close to the heartfelt E.T. movie. I mean, there's very few that do. For me, 
There is five minutes of perfect Transformers movie in this movie. Anytime we're on Cybertron, my geekgasm is off the charts. I'm just like, wow. I couldn't believe how excited I was. When I went to see the preview showing, first, right before the movie started, they came through and handed all of us a Transformers toy. A little blind bag Transformer. Oh, Yeah, and then I got to see a war <laughs> on Cybertron. I'm like, wow, I'm a trans fan. Then I saw the rest of the movie and I'm like, well. I see what they're doing here. Yeah, it's definitely not made for me. That is the biggest thing I can say is this movie is not made for a 40-year-old guy to go see alone. <laughs> when I went the second time, there were three of us in the theater. Two of us were 40-year-old men, and then there was the other 40-year-old guy's like seven-year-old son who just loved this movie. And I think this is the best Transformers film Period. I think it's the best Transformers film for a father to take his son to as well, because it's the most all ages friendly Transformer film. Whereas I think kids will either be frightened or lost or confused. Hell, I was frightened, lost and confused by most of Bay's films. So right there, it has passed several bars. It just goes to show removing Michael Bay from a franchise can only be an improvement. This movie has given me such high hopes for Bad Boys 3, I can't even begin to describe. But as for this itself, it's fine. It's fine. I'm gonna give it a green arrow. It's okay. It checks the boxes. It's a throwback film, like Jerry said. It gave me some 80s nostalgia. It hits the boxes. And, you know, it's far better than any of these Hallmark Christmas movies I've been watching lately. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, if you're gonna look at rote check-the-box movies full of white people, I look at Hallmark Christmas movies, and this is so much better of a formula adaptation than that. They're lucky that Michael Bay directed five bad films then because if this were the first Transformers movie we got if we had never seen it before I think both of you guys would be underwhelmed I'm whelmed just fine thank you <laughs> <laughs> and I went in with crossed arms and a scowl and was like come on I've after five Bay films the fact that they still made this I went in like prove yourself to me. I think I might have gone in more optimistic the first time as long as I knew the tone of the film. If I'd expected the first Transformers movie to be for 90 minutes, that five minutes we got on Cybertron, yes, I'd be very disappointed. But if I knew this was the girl in her car movie, I think I'd still be like, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, this is not a glowing recommendation. No, I, I, get, I hear where you're coming from. I don't even think we're that far apart, except that I refuse to call mediocrity recommendable. This is not good. Hey, a C means you pass the class. It just doesn't mean you're going to get a reward at the end of a valedictorian. Yeah, it, it's a recommend, not an Oscar nomination. I mean, come on, there's lines here. That's why I prefaced it with this holiday season. I mean, if there are other things, an Aquaman, Spider-Verse, Mary Poppins, I mean, any movie like this is going to be relatively niche. If, if this isn't your Avengers blockbuster that I expect everybody on the planet to see. But yeah, hey, if you, if you sit down and watch this movie, a little easygoing, knowing that it is lighthearted, yeah, does it cross into a slight kids movie? Uh, yeah, but not like Shrek is. But, you know, if you know the kind of movie you're watching, it's easy to enjoy. And I don't know that I can say enough how much having a good lead actress helps the film. Haley Steinfeld is very good here. She's the best thing about this film. I look forward to her future career and seeing what else she does. I've never seen the Pitch Perfect movies, so this is one of my first introductions to her other than True Grit and Spider-Verse. But 
she is better than Wahlberg, and she's better than LaBeouf. Well, I have a 14-year-old daughter, so I have seen the Pitch Perfect movies, and the second one I enjoy, but I did not remember her being in this. Like, I had to look up. It's like, man, I know her. What do I know her from? I'm like, oh, she was that character. She was a little underserved in that movie in terms of her role. It seemed like the role was going to be more, and then I, like, forgot she was in it. But I think Pitch Perfect's kind of funny, so if you like her well enough, Arnie, check it out if it ever comes around. And I just keep in mind that you guys are the bigger fans. I mean, you guys had the toys, watched the cartoon. You had higher expectations than I ever would for a Transformers movie. Going forward, when are we going to get something proper where it might look like the beginning of Bumblebee and we can have Optimus Prime lead a movie? There was a part seven scheduled for this coming summer. We now know that is way off the table. I know they're talking about G.I. Joe and Micronauts in 2020. 20 but i've heard nothing about casting or directors yet what do you think it's going to be it is so hard to say i know that there's been a little bit of turmoil as far as hasbro and storytelling goes because the idw comics tried to create this hasbro universe with gi joe and micronauts and rom and transformers and it didn't go so well from what I understand. I didn't read any of the comics, but I've talked to some of the creative people here, but I've talked to them off the record, so they will remain nameless. But it was not a positive experience for the comic people, for the toy people or anything. I think that G.I. Joe is due a reboot after two bad films. And Hasbro, I noticed that this was made by AllSpark Production Company, a division of Hasbro. They have their own film production company now are they going to cross over or are they going to reboot i'll believe any of it when film starts rolling until then they can have all the ideas they want micronauts i wouldn't invest a dollar in that film because that would be a dollar lost i know some of the people at hasbro and they've talked to me and been like micronauts 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 and i'm like you don't get it it's not gonna work and even rom the space knight I don't think that has any name recognition anymore. They're holding on to that like it's something. I think only for really the oldest of comic collectors is it. But Transformers, we're going to either get a break because this doesn't make a lot of money or we're going to get a Bumblebee 2 would be kind of my bet. I don't see us getting another huge Transformers like Bay gave us for a while because you still, I think you need to build up to that. I think last night just... It's still very recent and that bad taste is in everybody's mouth. Don't feel like you got to give us some Transformer movie in two years and just slap something together that uses these same computer models. That smells like the recipe for a fail. Really take some time and figure out what worked here, what people got excited about, what people didn't like, and map it out right. Not with a writer's room of a million people who all think their idea is the only way to go, but figure out what you really could do with this. Because there's something we want. The three-quarter of a billion dollars that people spent to see see at least three, four of those Babe movies tells you that we kind of want to see these Transformers do something exciting, but just do it right or don't do it at all. Or Chinese people just like watching CGI creations punch each other. That's my prediction, actually. Yeah. It'll be a Chinese language <laughs> movie. <laughs> Here's what is officially announced. Now, after the last night, they announced Transformers 6 was coming as well as Bumblebee. But as of earlier this year, Paramount has removed Transformers 6 from its schedule. And just this month, producer of the entire series, Lorenzo D. Bonaventura, said that any future films are going to follow Bumblebee in tone and in style. 
Yeah, okay. That's their audience they're selecting then. So if, if that's the case, then it'll be a kid's franchise. And I get why Hasbro would land on that because that's what they do with all the toys. And it's a kid's toy franchise. And if I guess if they decide that, like, yeah, we make it for the 30 and 40-year-old somethings like Jerry and Arnie, then that's only going to have so many legs to walk on. Well, not to veer too far away from movies, but covering toys the way I do, toy sales are in the toilet nobody's buying action figures anymore. If you're appealing to the 40-year-olds, you're not going to have any chance of linking with the youth market. And the youth market wants apps. They want digital content now. They don't want toys. But I do think it makes sense to go back to Transformers 1986 and try to capture the youth market because Hasbro's a toy company first and foremost. If these are giant toy commercials, you're not going to sell a lot of toys with the Michael Bay movies. So what you're telling me is they need to go to YouTube and just like maybe podcast or something, you know, whatever the kids like these days. Anything would work, but that's what they need to do. Not try to compete with these overly adult films with testicular balls and chains like Bay put in part two and the humping wheelies and the oiled up babes. It's just not the right market to sell toys to. So, ding dong, the Bay versus Dead. I think that's what we're all at least agreeing with. Whatever goes forward will be something new. We're going to take a little bit of a break from this going to the movie theaters and talking about Transformers. We're back to video games. A different kind of toy. Hitman. I don't know much about this one except that the guy's bald and he shoots people. Hitman is the next film that we're covering. Hey, I played that game when it was brand new, and there's a new release that just came out around the holidays that's quite acclaimed. So we'll be able to talk a bit to the games, and yeah, the movie, and then it's sequel slash reboot. Right. <laughs> and in between, M. Night keeps rolling along as we get nearer and nearer to glass. Things are, well, maybe getting better. We're at least getting bigger stars. Will Smith has joined him for After Earth. Calling him the star of that film is very generous. <laughs> Saying that it's getting better is also quite generous. I don't know that it's going to get too much better, but we'll find out if you can join us for Gold Level. I hope you do. It's been quite fun to go through his resume, the highs and the very lows. We'll be getting eventually to more hits, but this is one of the money losers. This is one of Knight's biggest flops. And this is our first show of the year, January 1st. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. And if you become a patron, we did Nightmare Before Christmas in December to let you know our January show. We're doing Super, the James Gunn movie about a guy, a regular Joe, who decides to put on a super suit and go fight crime. It's our tie-in to M. Knight's more realistic superhero universe of unbreakable split and glass. We'll see what James Gunn does with similar material in Super. And you can see our full schedule going through the first part of 2019 at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. And if video game movies aren't quite your thing, hey, we've got Happy Death Day coming up in February, Captain Marvel in March, Shazam, Pet Cemetery, Hellboy, and Avengers in April. April's going to be a busy month, a very freaking busy month. Yep. John Wick 3 and theoretically X-Men Dark Phoenix is still coming out. So a lot of theatrical releases as well. So Jerry, thank you for coming back for this Transformers episode. Hey, thank you guys. And listeners, happy new year. And we hope you stick with us for all of 2019 till all are one.
races united by a history long forgotten and a future we shall face together. I am Optimus Prime, and I send this message so that our pasts will always be remembered. For in those memories, we live on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Transformers Movie Retrospective Series. Tell Grimlock about Petro Rabbits again. Remember to come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Transformers film leading up to the weekend of release review of this summer's Transformers Dark of the Moon. Never seen anything like this before. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other films such as Terminator, X-Men, Star Trek, Predator, and many more, as well as individual movie reviews such as Avatar, Inception, Howard the Duck, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Your, your friends will love it. Sure, it's a lot of fun. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Transformers movies with other listeners. Are you not surprised to see us? You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. We are here. We are waiting. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. I owe you my life. We are in your debt. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Just ask yourself, what would Jesus do? You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available at our homepage. Like us, there's more to them than meets the eye. Now Playing's Transformers Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. Did you know it was going to be this hard? Can you just stop? Now Playing is not affiliated with Hasbro Incorporated, Paramount Pictures, DreamWorks Pictures, or 20th Century Fox. Not a word until we get a lawyer. Transformers and all that the Transformers universe contains is the property of Hasbro Incorporated and no infringement is intended. Okay, so what? I've, I've downloaded a couple thousand songs off the internet. Who has it? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. There's something a little fishy about you, your son, your little Taco Bell dog, and this whole operation you got going on here. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2019, all rights reserved. Come on, showtime's over. We've got work to do. But I don't know that having Haley Stein... Was that your phone? Mm-mm. What am I finding? Something beep. Not mine. No, I really don't think it's me, but I'll just double check. It wasn't me, as I don't even have my phone in here. Oh, you know what it was. <laughs> gotcha! You did. Ha! All right. All right, then, Arnie. You get to get the plot. Nope, I don't. Oh, wait. Shit. <laughs> Excuse me. Yes. <laughs> I, I can't, I, you've just totally thrown us all off. All right. But that Lieutenant... Dan Burns. I mean, that's that's a movie. <laughs> we can talk about Lieutenant Dan. <laughs> Lieutenant Dan. Like shrimp. I like shrimp. <laughs> that.